This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. The song that we just sang had a very little, it had a very interesting piece of imagery in it. That you may not, uh, if, unless you grew up in church, you might not understand. It says, We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Most of you are thinking, I didn't know I had one of those. Maybe if I had one, I'd lay it down there. What does that mean? Well, among other things, what it means is, obviously anyone who wears a crown, it's a symbol of authority and the power to rule. In other words, it's the power to be in charge. Now, I want you to look on the front of your program and see what we're going to talk about today. Because the topic of the morning is knowing who is in charge. And basically what that song says is I recognize that I take my crown. In other words, anything that represents my opportunity to rule and power and authority. And I lay it down at the feet of Jesus because I recognize that when it comes to ruling, he's far better at it than I am. Now, if you want the short course of the morning, there it is. There's only one who's really capable and worthy of ruling. So I want to welcome you to that particular topic. For those of you who are new to New Life, welcome to church this morning. On the inside of your program, you'll find a sheet of notes folded in half that's fill in the blank. I want to encourage you to take it out and it'll walk you through what I'm going to say. My name is Ron, and if I didn't get a chance to meet you on the way in, I would love to meet you. Before you leave, I'll be hanging out in the lobby afterwards. So who's in charge anyway? By the way, if anyone, when, when you're in a room and someone walks in and says, okay, who's in charge around here? Is that usually a good thing or not such a good thing? It's usually not such a good thing, right? And, no, and, and everybody looks around, that's a time when nobody's going to raise their hand because, you know, they're not usually saying, okay, this is such a rousing success. Who can we give all the credit to? It's usually something's falling apart and we want to know who to jump on or We want to know who to do what I just did with Justin, throw somebody under the bus. Well, this morning, as we take a look at that particular topic, I want you to understand that many of the struggles in life actually just kind of revolve around that axis of who's in charge anyway. Have you ever wondered why a two-year-old will flop himself on the floor, yell and scream, beat on the floor, and do all sorts of wild and crazy things that we call a temper tantrum? You know what he's really trying to figure out? Who's in charge? And that's his way of making a statement, and that is, I will make things so miserable that eventually you will allow me to be in charge. Yeah. Have you ever wondered why? Teens will sometimes do things they know do two things. First of all, absolutely irritate their parents to the nth degree. And number two, make themselves look really stupid. Yeah. The answer is, they're making a statement. It's the same statement as the two-year-old. It's just done in different language and in, 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 in a little different genre. But basically is, I will make things so miserable around here that eventually I will get my own way and that's my way of being in charge. You ever wonder why people go to work and posture 
You know what they're really trying to figure out? I don't really feel like scratching everybody's back, but if I could figure out who's really in charge, I wouldn't mind scratching theirs. It's amazing how much of our life we spend assessing and reassessing this concept of who's really in charge and who really has the power. Because if I could know who really was in charge and who had the power, then I would know how to behave, I would know how to act. Because in the end, if I can manipulate someone who's in charge, guess who is really in charge? Me. And because we are humans, we love to be in charge. And we get a little uneasy when we feel like things are out of our control. Well, I want to start out by teaching you a principle. And if you've ever gone to any form of AA or NA or, or any sort of celebrate recovery uh, sort of deal, the very, very first principle that they're going to teach you is one that every single person who walks the face of the earth should know. Whether you think you fight any sort of addiction or not, you need to know and understand this principle. And I've, I've lifted the language directly out of Celebrate Recovery. Here it is. The principle number one, the R for recovery, stands for realize that I am not... What's the next word? Let's say that, let's read that together. Realize that I am not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and my life is unmanageable. You know, a fellow by the name of Ernest Kernst wrote a book that is probably the definitive work on the history of the AA movement. And the title of his book will tell you a lot. You know what the title of his book about the history of AA is? Here it is, two words, not God. And in that book, he says this, Fundamental to the recovery process is that healing and sanity begin with a single realization that I am not God. I'm not in control of my universe. In fact, I often cannot even control myself. I violate my own values. I want to do one thing, and then I do something else. There's not a person in the audience this morning that can't relate to that. As much, as, as much of a downer as that is, the truth is, in this room, every single person, probably at some point in this week, did something that violated your own value system. And you were disappointed in your own behavior. And yet, though we are completely, I think, in many cases, aware of our own weaknesses and our own faults and our own inadequacies, we would still love to jump up on the throne of life and dictate what happens because we still trust ourselves more than we trust anybody else. Isn't that true? I'm shocked in my own life at how many times I have climbed down off of the throne of my life only to wake up at some future date and there I am again. How did I get up there? I don't know. It's like earlier in this week, I was so sick. I was actually crawling on the floor and I woke up 
For those of you who don't know, my wife and I are living in a trailer while our house is being remodeled. I woke up halfway between the bathroom and the bedroom on the floor. What am I? Oh, yeah, I was trying to make my way back to the bed. Okay? Now, I don't tell you that for any reason other than I have those moments when I wake up on the throne of my life and I go, how did I get here? I had no intention of being in charge of my life. I'm the guy who stands up and leads the troops in this wonderful message of trust God with your life. How did I get back up here? Oh, yeah, I was making my way down off of the throne of my life. Super important principle. So this morning, we're going to talk about this. Now, I want you to realize how far back this concept goes. Way back to the very first temptation when, when Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden. I want you to see what Satan said to them here in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 5. Your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like what? That's the very first temptation. It has always been our desire to jump up and be in control. Now, the story that we're going to go through this morning is a story that I began last week, and, and I've included the entire thing in your notes, but I'm not going to read it all because it would take a while. But the, but the bottom line is, Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, and he has a dream so he calls in all of his wise men, and there were four categories of them. There were the astrologers, the magicians, and the diviners, and I forget what the fourth one was. But there were four different groups of them. Well, I think they're called the wise men. And he brought them all in, and he said, here's the deal. I had a dream, and I want to know what it means. And they said, speak up, we are ready. Now, what they didn't tell the king was what they were really saying. We can make up an interpretation for any dream you can come up with. And the king kind of had a feeling that was the case. So he said, okay, guys, we're changing the rules as of this morning. If you guys have all the supernatural power and ability to interpret dreams, then you, then you must have the supernatural power to know what the dream is without me telling it to you. So you tell me what my dream is, and then I'll believe what you tell me it means. And they swallowed really hard. And they said, you're nuts. Well, they didn't say it quite like that because he was the king. They said, do you realize no king has ever asked that of anybody? There's no man on the face of the earth who could do that. There's only one way that could possibly happen, and that is if the gods actually lived among men, and we know that, that they don't. And the king said, well, I'm going to help you think about it, because if you can't come up with it, I'm going to cut off all your heads. So go concentrate. Well, you better believe they did, Right? And when the decree went out to kill all of the wise men of Babylon, a fellow by the name of Arioch, whose, whose job it was to kill them all, went to round up Daniel and his buddies. And they came to Daniel and said, you know, hey, say goodbye to the wife and kids. You're on the way to the guillotine. Daniel's going, whoa, 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 time out. What's, what's the deal? Oh, it's a decree of the king. What, what decree? Well, here's the deal. And they told him the story. And he said, would you mind taking me into the king? So he went into the king. And he said, king, I'm not going to tell you that what you've requested is, is, is a bad deal. But will you give me some time to pray to my God? Because I think my God can tell you your dream and what the answer is. And the king gave him time. 
And Jenny went home and found his buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said, dudes, if you've ever prayed, now's the time. And so they prayed together. And that night, God revealed to Daniel what the dream was and what its interpretation was. And Daniel comes in front of the king. And, and he says to the king, let me tell you what God says. And he gave him a great vision that at the very end of this message, I'm going to read to you the conclusion of that vision because the conclusion is the purpose for the entire vision. But now in that story, there's this subplot that goes on because there are four major characters or groups of characters in this story, and they all have a different perspective about who's in charge. Because that's the subplot that goes underneath, okay? Let's start with the most obvious, and that's the king, Nebuchadnezzar. It was early in his reign. Nebuchadnezzar had just ascended the throne. It was the second or third year of his reign. He was the most powerful man in the entire world. Anywhere Nebuchadnezzar went in the entire Mediterranean world, he was recognized as the, as the emperor of the most powerful nation in the world at the time. His kingdom was huge and vast. It spread over thousands of miles. He was the wealthiest man in the world. He was the most powerful man in the world. And if you had talked to Nebuchadnezzar and said, who's in charge? He would have said, I am because I am the most powerful man in the world and I will demand anything I want and people will either give it to me or I'll kill them. I'm in charge. Now, if you had interviewed the astrologers and the advisors, they would have said, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world, but he does come to us for advice. So where does that put us? And not only that, when the king wants to know what's going to happen in the future, and he wants predictions, and he wants interpretation of dreams, and he wants an understanding of the signs of the times, he comes to us. So we are really in charge because we predict what's going to happen. It puts us in the place of power even over the king. Now there's this guy, Arioch. And Arioch, well, he's, he's a great guy. He's the captain of the king's guard, which means he's in charge of the most elite troop that the king has. And this king has the most powerful army in the world. So he is the dude in charge of the very best soldiers in all of the world. You think Arioch might be feeling it a little bit? I'm sure he was. Very, very well paid on a first-name basis with the king. He's out there doing what the king wants. And, and you know what's really cool about Arioch? Now, why did he originally go to Daniel? Dude, you're on your way to the guillotine, right? And Daniel says, whoa, whoa, well, time out, okay? Uh, not so quick. I, I, if you'll give me time to pray, uh, there's a God in heaven who can reveal. Now, when Daniel gets the revelation from God and says to Arioch, take me into the king because God has revealed to me what, what the deal is. I want you to see Arioch's terminology. Arioch walks into the king and says, I have found a man who can do it for you. 
Isn't it interesting? The first word out of his mouth was what? I. Ariok is going, I am in charge because if there's anything you want to know about me, king, I make things happen. You couldn't find someone to interpret your dream. I found him. I can do it. I'm your can-do man. So interesting how all of them have this perspective and they want to posture so that everybody knows that they're the ones that are really in charge. The last group of people in this story is Daniel and his friends. And Daniel and his friends have a very unique perspective, and here it is. God is ultimately in charge. So the deal in life is to quit posturing as if you're in charge or as if I'm in charge, but the deal in life is we should bring ourselves into alignment with God because He's the one who's really in charge. Now, if there's any message I would want you to get this morning and that God would want you to get, it's that message right there. It's not that you don't have a responsibility in life, and we talk about that often, but you could do all the stuff. You know what? We know what Bob said this morning. You could come to church. You could pray all the prayers. You could sing all the songs. You could stand at the right time. You could sit down at the right time. You could smile at the right time. You could say amen at the right time. You can do all that stuff. But if you don't get connected with God, you miss the whole purpose of being here. Now, I want to tell you, you can go through life and you can do all the things that you are supposed to do. But if you do them all from the standpoint that you're the one in charge and you're going to take your life and you're going to aim it in the right direction and, and by self-control and all the rest and discipline and all that stuff, you're, you're just going to, you're going to make things happen in your life because by golly, by the end of your life, you're going to do something greater. You're going to die trying. If that's the way you go through life, you will have missed the purpose of life. Because the real purpose of life is not for you just to do good. Even though God loves it, the real purpose in life is for you to find God's will and pursue it. Now take a look at what the title of this series is. It is Pursuing Spiritual Excellence. It's not finding spiritual excellence because this is a pursuit that you will be on for the rest of your life. For those of you who drive a Lexus automobile, okay? Okay? What, what is it their phrase is? The endless pursuit of perfection. Okay? Can I share with you as Christians, it's the endless pursuit of spiritual excellence. And the great thing about it is there's always something for us to be doing. But in the, in the end, spiritual excellence is getting ourselves in alignment with God's will. So that's kind of the short course of this particular story. Now, there's, there's another little subplot in here that I want to help you see. And that is there are some signs <clears throat> of things that often are not right. Signs of control issues. Anybody in the room have control issues? Now, here are some signs of control issues, and the king has them. You know, the interesting thing about King Nebuchadnezzar is because he's king and the most powerful man in the world, he makes no attempt to hide who he is. So we can see them very easily in his life. But here are three signs of control issues. Number one, surrounding myself with yes people who will flatter me. The king brings in the advisors and they say, oh, king, live forever. You the dude. 
And he says, thank you very much. I'm glad you noticed. You know, it's just amazing that when we have control issues, we want everyone in our world to say, yes. Yes. And we get frustrated when they don't say yes, right? Because they're meddling with our control. And they're being difficult and hard to get to do what we want to do. So the king, he surrounded himself with, with these astrologers who were his official yes guys. The second sign of control issues is this, throwing a fit when I don't get my way. Now I know we're all mature adults. There's not a single person in this room who throws a fit. Correct? Yeah. And when those around us respectfully disagree with us, we look at them and say, thank you so much for sharing your opinion. I don't know what I would do without it. Isn't it amazing, even as adults, we have little ways of throwing fits? Yeah, we get very sophisticated at that. The king said, this is what I have firmly decided, and if you don't tell me what my dream is and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and have your houses turned into piles of rubble. How's that? There's a little tantrum, don't you think? And the problem was he was king and he could do it, and he started at it. There's a third sign of control issues, and that is paranoia when things don't turn out as I anticipate. Then you know what the king says? I am certain you are trying to gain time because you realize this is what I have firmly decided. Now he thinks they're all colluding against him. By the way, the reason I give you these three is because it's important for you not to analyze your wife or your husband or your kids. It's very important for you to analyze your own behavior and say, does that really actually fit me? Because if you were to take all three of these and kind of condense them into one lesson, this is what I call the bonus lesson of this particular message. And I want you to take a look at it because it's so vitally important. The bonus lesson is this. The patient acceptance of frustration in everyday life is crucial to the formation of my character. That's so important, I want you to read it out loud with me. Would you please? Let's read together. Patient acceptance of frustration in everyday life is crucial to the formation of my character. You know, I have a little thing that I say to my wife once in a while. I always say it in good humor, okay? So just, you can be forewarned about that, okay? Okay? But when the time is right, and it seems like the opportunity is there, I will say that's just another one of the many sacrifices I make to maintain marital harmony. (laughs) Isn't that fun? Uh, Anyhow, she and I both laugh about that. In fact, sometimes she will say that to me. Um, I wish that all of us had this statement memorized and would learn to say it at the opportune moments in time. Patient acceptance, not patient endurance, patient acceptance of frustration. Not once in a while, but how often? In everyday life is crucial 
to the formation of my character. You want to do yourself a favor in pursuing spiritual excellence, memorize that statement this week and learn to begin saying it to yourself when you get cut off as you're driving, when you encounter incompetence at work, when your children don't automatically do what you would love for them to do, when your wife or your husband, in your opinion, underperforms in terms of what you expected of them in everything from dinner to work to fix-it list to whatever it is. Patient acceptance of frustration. It's the opposite of control. Can you see that? It is. Now, as we move on, let me teach you this. These guys had what I call a flawed perspective, and we paused on it just briefly last week. I want to point it out to you one more time. They said to the king, King, there's only one way this could happen, and that is if the gods actually lived among men. And they started from an assumption or a perspective that there's no way that a superhuman being would actually share life with regular human beings. Now, admittedly, they were looking at the gods in terms of pagan gods and all that sort of thing. But, you know, the great message of life is that the, not just a superhuman being, but the ultimate ruler of time and eternity the creator and sustainer of all that exists, actually wants to share life with you and me. When you got up this morning, he was already up. And he waited for you to talk with him and speak with him. When you got to church, he was already here. And that's even for those of you who were here on time. When you got here, he was already here. He's here now. And he waits for us to connect. He lives among us. He lives in us. That's why we become Christians. Because on the day that we give our hearts and lives to Christ, we open them up and we say, Lord Jesus, would you come and live inside of me. That's the difference between Christianity and religion. In Christianity, we live in a lifelong partnership with God. Now, here's the deal, okay? These guys drew this conclusion, and their lives illustrate something that our lives can illustrate, and that is control issues arise when I live as if God is not in ultimate control of my life. Now, for those of you who have been Christians for longer than two months, I want you to listen to this. There's not a Christian I know who wouldn't say to me, God's in control of my life. Okay? Then you know what I would say to that? Then live like it. 
When you throw your little temper tantrum because you don't get your own way, my question is, who's in control in that moment? See, control issues arise in our lives only when we're not living as if God were in ultimate control. Now, I can tell you with certainty, every single human being who walks the face of the earth struggles with control issues. It is one of the ultimate struggles of human life. And I know that the reason that God has called us here today is that we would recommit ourselves to the understanding and living today and tomorrow and the next day fully cognizant of the fact that God will control my life if I let Him. And even if I don't, eventually He will. Have you ever taken a dog for a walk that didn't want to be led on a walk? Especially if it's a big dog. Man, that can wear you out in no time at all. This sort of thing. And the dog's going over here and you're chasing the dog over there and pulling you off balance and tugging it. You know, I don't know if it's any exercise for the dog, but it sure is for its owner when that happens. And then you see owners that are out walking their dogs and the leash always has a little slack in it. And when the owner moves, the dog just prances along beside the owner and looks up at the owner. And when the owner pauses, it it wiggles its little tail and goes, oh, it does whatever it's going to do. You realize there's a wonderful picture in there about us and God. The struggle in life happens and we get choked when we pull where God doesn't really want us to go. But we still think, oh, God's in control because he's got his hand on the leash. Such an interesting picture. Now, let's move on. I want to teach you four or five lessons about living under God's control. And they're all in the text. And I'll move through them quickly because they're all pretty self-explanatory. But I want you to see in the text, they're all just there. They happen verse after verse after verse. So let's take a look at this. Uh, The first thing I want to teach you is this. We must allow God to work things out in His time. How many of you would be a lot happier if God would pay more attention to your calendar? If God would just do things when I want Him to do things, golly, life would make a whole lot of sense to me. And we get really frustrated when God won't get on board with our calendar. Now, here's exactly what... What the Bible says, at this Daniel went into the king and he asked for what? Did he ask for time so that Daniel could figure this thing out? Or did he ask for time so God could reveal it to him? So God could reveal it to him. I know many of you sit at crossroads in your lives. And the easiest thing in the world is to try to run ahead of God. But you're asking for wisdom and discernment. And some of you are making choices right now that a few years ago you wouldn't have made because you would have rushed right into something because on the surface it looked good. The first thing that we must learn 
is that God has a timetable that isn't necessarily in tune with our calendar. And that's okay. Because if God were to work by our time frame, life would be chaotic. After all, we work by our time frame, don't we? And how is our life? We, make, we, we tend to make enough chaos as it is. So the first thing is we have to allow time for God to work things out in his own time. The second principle here is this. We must seek the partnership of others who have turned their lives over to God's control. My parents used to tell me this as a kid. They used to say, Ron, pick your friends very carefully because eventually you act and look like them. I don't have time to give you a whole bunch of illustrations of that, but it really is true. And you do want to pick your friends very carefully. I'm amazed. You know, being a pastor has some very interesting uh, dimensions to life. When people are really pursuing God and they're really on this spiritual growth, just this vertical spiritual growth curve, and they just can't get enough of God and they can't get enough of His Word and they can't get enough of Christian people, I'm the greatest guy and they can't wait to see me. Hey, Pastor, how are you doing? If I'm in Safeway, they walk three aisles over to find me. But when they're not pursuing spiritual excellence and they're at a place of struggle in their life, they see me come in the aisle, they duck out the other side. I'm the last guy they want to see. Now, I have a little bit of mercy, and there are times when they don't know that I have actually seen them duck out of the aisle. And I pray and ask for discernment, and there are times when God says, just pray for them and let them go. And I do, and I don't make their life miserable. I just pray for them. And then there are times when God goes, find them. And believe it or not, I would rather pray than go and seek somebody that I know doesn't want to talk to me. But you know, I still got to do whatever he says to do, okay? But it's interesting. Here's Daniel. And Daniel goes and finds his three buddies who have also turned their lives over to the control of God. And we'll see that next week. And I just want you to know, if you want to pursue spiritual excellence, it's why we ask you to get involved in life groups. You get involved in a life group where people are pursuing spiritual excellence, and it's amazing how much easier the journey is to take when you take it in the partnership of those and the company of those who are also on that same spiritual journey. That's what they did. So Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Principle number three is this. We must seek God through earnest prayer. We're inviting the church starting next Sunday on a, on a journey called 21 Days of Prayer. And I would just want to tell you right up front that the purpose of prayer is not so that you can get God to do what you want Him to do. The purpose of prayer is so that you can seek what God really wants in life and get on board with it. That's a great place to be. Because when I go to God in prayer and say, God, this is what I want, and here are the reasons I want it, and since you are God, you can do it, is there any way that you would possibly do that for me? Basically what I'm saying is, God, I would really like to be in charge. 
Now, it's great to express our desires to God. But you know the great thing that Jesus said at the end of his prayer? Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. Seeking God through earnest prayer. I think I know Daniel well enough from reading the book many times and studying his life. I don't think Daniel went in and said, Oh, God, the king's going to cut off my head if you don't tell me what the deal is. So would you please tell me what the deal is? Because I would certainly like to live longer. Now, I think Daniel went in and said, Oh, God, you know the trouble we're in. I think he knew that. But you know, I think Daniel also recognized that the purpose of the vision wasn't so that the king could be smarter. And the purpose of the vision wasn't so Daniel could be Mr. Cool and walk in and interpret it for the king. The purpose of the vision was that God was going to tell the king what was going to happen in history. And that was a really, really important thing. And so Daniel went with his friends, and he sought God earnestly through prayer. Principle number four is this. We must bless God through praise. God revealed that vision to Daniel, and Daniel blessed God, and he praised him. And you know, the interesting thing is, if you read Daniel and you read his life, you will realize that Daniel actually blessed God before God revealed the answer. You know, I can be very grateful as long as God always gives me what I want, right? Man, I can praise. Thank you, Jesus. Because I got this new whatever it is in my wood shop, right? Yeah. Or whatever it is even in the church. But the deal is when I have a heart that's filled with praise. And my praise doesn't fluctuate up and down based upon how often God says yes to what I want. It's that having that heart of praise and saying, God, you know, even if you don't reveal this to me and the king goes out and he cuts my head off, okay, I'm going to praise you anyway because one way or the other, my life is going to end in a good thing. Either you're going to reveal to me what the king wants and I'm going to go in and share it with the king and the king is going to know that you are God and that's a good thing or, or you're not going to reveal it to me and the king's going to cut off my head and I'm going to heaven today. In either case, I'm going to bless you. Principle number five is this. We must acknowledge and yield to God's ultimate control. Here's what Daniel said. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and He deposes them. By the way, I hope all of you who are eligible to do so will vote in our coming elections. But I want you to understand that if you vote and you do not pray, you are wasting your time. Everybody on board with that? Because it's ultimately God who sets up and deposes rulers. The Bible is very clear about that. And there are times when God allows people to come into power who are very, very corrupt and evil. Because his people have not prayed and done their work ahead of time. 
Daniel says, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I want to share this as another bonus principle. The more that you seek after God's will, the more God reveals things to you that will be confusing to other people. The people in my life that I have known and met who at the end of their life had the highest level of peace and the lowest level of of chaos and frustration and confusion are the people who have consistently sought after God their whole lifetime. It's amazing when they arrive at a position of peace It's amazing how God is their friend and he begins to reveal to them things that he would not reveal to other people because they haven't earned the right to receive that revelation. I could show you that principle over and over and over again in Scripture. It's one of the reasons why at this church we continually urge and encourage all of us to meet God daily, to live in a daily partnership with Him, and just to be open to Him. That's just a wonderful way in which to live life. As we bring the message to a conclusion, I want to share with you one final principle. And that is the purpose of the vision was God wanted to show the king his purpose in history. By the way, who was really in control? Was it the king? He could have killed everybody in his kingdom, but if God decided not to reveal it to him, he wouldn't know it, right? Because the king really wasn't in control. It wasn't the astrologers because although they could make up predictions, they could not accurately predict the future without God's revelation. Was it Arioch? No. (coughs) If Daniel hadn't been who he was, Arioch couldn't have found anybody who could interpret that for the king. Was it Daniel and his buddies? No, they recognized they weren't in control. They just knew who was. It was God. And I want want to finish with a couple of things. First of all, when you pick up the paper and you read day after day what's happening in our world, can that be very unsettling? It is very unsettling. How many times have you picked up the paper and shook your head and said, what's this world coming to? We all do that. I want you to know that God is ultimately in control. Always has been and always will be. And God has said, I am not directing affairs so that this is like heaven where everything I want to have happen happens. But please rest assured, I will not allow this world to spin so far out of control that it no longer accomplishes my ultimate purpose in history. It will. Now, in this vision, the king saw a giant statue. And the statue had a head of gold. It had um, this section of the statue was silver, okay? Then the belly and the thighs were of brass or bronze. And then the legs and the feet were iron and the feet partly of iron and partly of clay mixed. 
And here's what God said. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So far, so good, right? Golly, if I'm going to be part of that statue, I wouldn't mind being the, being the head of gold, right? Most important part of the statue, and, and certainly made out of the finest stuff. But he said, your kingdom's not going to endure forever. In fact, your kingdom's going to give way to the Medes and the Persians. By the way, you know why that head was of gold? If you've ever studied the, the wonders of the ancient world, Nebuchadnezzar had a gardens in the city of Babylon that to this day, we don't know how he made that happen. But there were hanging gardens, huge pots and, and, and cloth uh, strips that went from place to place and drapes. And it was all automatically watered. And it was fan- Why? Because one of his wives missed the foliage of her homeland. And he said, I'll bring your country here. And so he had these giant pots with full-grown trees. And it was just absolutely fabulous. The wall that went around the city of Babylon, the exterior wall, there were two walls actually, but the the most exterior of those two was so wide that a four-horse chariot could make a U-turn on the top of the wall. It was truly a magnificent city. Nevertheless, God said, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is not going to endure forever. You're going to give way to a group of people called the Medes and the Persians. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had no clue who the Medes and the Persians were at that time because they were as yet a very little known people. But sure enough, two generations later, his kingdom gave way to the Medes and the Persians. And he said, their kingdom will not be as great as yours, so it'll, it's, it's like the silver. But he said, their kingdom is not going to last forever either because their kingdom is going to give way to the Greeks. And if you've studied history, then you understand Philip of Macedon and, and his son Alexander the Great. That's what God was predicting hundreds of years before they came into power. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, that kingdom is not going to endure forever either because after them, there's a kingdom that's going to come that's going to conquer them, and it's the Romans. And sure enough, the Greeks gave way to the Romans. And then there was a piece of that vision where there was a rock that fell from the top of the mountains, and it was not, it was not cut out with human hands. And it came down, and it struck that image, and it ground it to powder, and the rock grew, and it filled the whole earth. And he said, now, king, that's the real reason for this vision. Because inasmuch as that rock was not cut out with human hands, this is not a human kingdom. This is a divine one. And it's really God's purpose in history. And we'll read to you exactly what he said. In the time of those kings, those kings of the feet that were iron, partly iron and partly clay, those Roman kings, at the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. If you are a Christian and part of God's kingdom, the church, you're part of that kingdom. 
because that is the kingdom that will endure forever. It will never be left to another people. It will never be conquered by any kingdom. If you're wondering, boy, what's going to happen? I'm going to get all the Christians together and kill all the Christians and some other religion's going to take over the world. You never have to worry about that because God says, my purposes will ultimately be served in this world. That's why God gave the vision. As we close, worship team's going to come and sing a song. Very, very simple message. I want you to be challenged by it, but I also want you to take a look at the control issues in your own life. And I want you to say, if, if you're ready to say it, not, not in any sort of hypocritical way, but if you're ready to say it, I, w- I want you to say the words of the song. And that is, God, I admit that I'm not God and I'm powerless to control my life. You are God and I am not. And as, the, as of this day, I yield my life to you. Father, as the worship team sings, would you speak to us so that we might walk in harmony with your will and fully embrace it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.